Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Last week, I suppose the most famous evangelical Christian in the world passed away. I heard uh, Billy Graham preach twice in my life, once in 1975 in Jackson, Mississippi. I was three years old, one of my first memories of life. The second time was uh, a little more recent, 2002, over here at the old Cowboys Stadium before they tore it down. I remember that one well because it was the day after I asked Melissa to marry me, and we were showing off her ring with a magnifying glass. (laughs) (laughs) Melissa and I were discussing Reverend Graham's life this week after his death and how people on social media and even the mainstream media were commenting that he certainly would receive great rewards in heaven. And I have no reason to believe that that's not the case. But I commented to Melissa that I suspect that the people who receive the greatest rewards and commendations in heaven are not people who dined with queens and presidents in the Lord's service, but those who labored faithfully behind the scenes, whose names perhaps we will never know. We are introduced to some of these unheralded heroes of ministry in our text this morning. It's Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Let's open our copies of God's Word there. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And we begin a new chapter today, chapter 8, as we're studying verse by verse through Luke's Gospel Now, you know that when Luke wrote his gospel, it was in the form of a letter written to an individual, a man by the name of Theopolis. He did not have chapters and verses. When we write letters, we don't use chapters and verses. Those were added later by editors so that we could find our place more easily. And so when we're reading this as a letter, we have to look for clues, words and phrases that connect different episodes together. The Apostle Paul is famous for using the word therefore in his his epistles. He'll say, because of this, therefore, this is true. And so I often say to to our people here when we're studying the Pauline literature that when you see the word therefore, you need to back up a few verses to see what the therefore is, is therefore. Well, Luke also had one of these transitional phrases. We find it here in verse 1. It's soon afterwards, soon afterwards. That is the action that follows, that he's about to talk about, is connected to the action that immediately came before it. Even though it's a different chapter, you remember the action that came before here. Jesus had been invited to a meal in the home of a Pharisee named Simon. While he was reclining at the the table, a woman with a very bad reputation, likely a prostitute, showed up and began to kiss Jesus' feet. And her tears streamed down and washed his feet with her tears and she dried them with her hair. Jesus did not rebuke her as Simon and others felt he should. Rather, he praised her faith, commended her, pronounced her forgiven and at peace with God. And I made the comment last week that no one ever did more to elevate the status of women than Jesus. And I believe that. I'll stand beside that. And that really is the theme that Luke, Luke continues into chapter 8, and that is the relationship of Jesus and women. And so let's read the first three verses of, of that chapter, chapter 8. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. 
And the twelve were there, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Shuza, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to the support out of their private means. And may the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. We're studying today the unheralded heroes of ministry. And in these three short verses that I just read, we find several enduring themes and truths about gospel ministry. And the first is the focus of ministry. Look what it says. He began going from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Obviously, the model for ministry is the Lord Jesus. And remember that he had during his earthly ministry a, a sort of base camp in the little village of Capernaum, likely in the home of Simon Peter. And he would go out traveling from village to village. Archaeologists tell us there were over 200 villages surrounding the Sea of Galilee during the ministry of Christ. And he would heal, he would uh, teach, and he would go from synagogue to synagogue. But the focus of Christ's ministry, as we said last week, was not the healing. It was not the casting out of demons. Those were wonderful things. But the focus of Christ's ministry, and therefore all Christian ministry, is the proclamation of the gospel. Now, Baptists historically have built hospitals and we have fed the hungry and clothed the naked. We should do all of those things. Jesus instructed us to. He modeled that before us. But the base and the essential of Christian ministry is the proclamation of the kingdom of God. And God in His sovereignty could have chosen any means at His disposal, which means anything, because He's God, to bring about salvation of the lost. But He has chosen in His sovereignty the proclamation of the gospel. That is, one believer telling another believer about Jesus and about sin and judgment and righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You see, man has always had a pretty high view of himself. And so the philosophers have hypothesized that man is one day going to advance till he can figure all of his problems out. That he can either find God or become God. And God says that will never happen. And so what does God do? He is well pleased through the foolishness of the proclaimed message, that is the gospel preached, to save those who believe. Now, now here's something to note here about God's plan to save the lost through the preaching of the gospel. He does not have a plan B. That's the only plan that he has, according to, to Scripture. And when he calls the, the preaching of the gospel foolish, he's not talking about foolish preaching. Turn on Christian television if you want to see some of that. He, he, he's talking about the fact that the culture viewed the simplicity that God sent Christ to die in the place of sinners, foolishness to the learned and the academic world. You see, the Gentiles, he's, specific, he's speaking specifically of the Greeks, we're always trying to find something new, some new philosophy, some higher way of thinking. And the apostles come along and they say salvation is by placing simple faith, as Jesus said, childlike faith, in what Christ did for you. That is, God left the glories of heaven, lived a perfect life, and died taking the punishment that you deserve. To them that was foolishness. Their gods would never do anything for them selflessly. In fact, the Greek pantheons of gods were known for their 
indifference, if not antipathy towards man. And so they could not relate. And so to them, the simple gospel was foolishness. Romans 10, 12 says, though, for there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, abounding in riches for all and all who call on Him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he asks this series of rhetorical questions concerning the gospel. How will they, that is Jew or Greek, call on Him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in Him in whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? That is God's only plan is that someone who knows the gospel proclaims the gospel to those who don't know the gospel. And when that generation dies off, the next generation who heard the gospel from them passes it to the next generation. And that has been what's been happening for 2,000 years. The gospel has been perpetuated from one generation to the next through the proclamation of the simple gospel. In this case, uh, here in chapter 8, it was the Lord Jesus doing the proclaiming. He was going from village to village preaching the gospel. But his chosen 12, it says, were also there, and they were observing and learning, I take it, because there was going to come a day very shortly where Jesus was going to be killed and be resurrected and ascend back into glory, and it would be up to them to take the gospel message. Remember, he, he later commissioned them to teach all the things that he had taught them. And today, we continue to do that. We teach the Bible, the things that the apostles were taught by Jesus. We now teach to others. And, and Paul told Timothy that's the way it would always be. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, the things which you have heard from me. Now Paul, an older, wise apostle, is writing to this young pastor Timothy. He says, the things which you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the way it works. And aren't you glad? I heard just this week about some young men in our church, very young men, who the Lord is stirring in their heart, calling them into ministry. And they're already taking places of leadership and, and teaching in our youth group. And you continue to pray that the Lord would raise up that next generation as He's been faithful to do. Now the second thing we see about ministry is not only that the focus of it is the gospel, but the Lord calls us to individual roles in ministry, the roles of ministry. When we say that Christ and Christianity have elevated the status of women, we do not mean to say that there are not distinctive roles that God has given men and women in His defined plan. He certainly has. That's clear throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament for that matter. In fact, all of those that Jesus chose as His apostles, those that would have authority in and over the church were men. And for this reason, we do not ordain women in, in this church. It's not because we view women as inferior or less intelligent or less important. It's that we believe this to be the revealed will of God through the Scriptures. And by the way, that's why we ought to have all of our policies. And that's how all the doctrine of our church should be established, is our best understanding of God's will through the Scriptures. But it's not just in the church where the leaders are to be men. It's, it's also in the home. God has given roles in the home to both men and, and women. God has given to the man the role of servant leadership in the home. That does not mean that women don't have an important place in the home any more than they don't have an important place in the church. In fact, our text today mentions three women by name and others who are unnamed, who I believe are representative of countless women who've been used by God through the ages in ministry. Look what it says. 
Not only were the 12 disciples there, the men that Jesus had chosen, but also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Shusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and, and many others. Now, the, these first three are listed from most famous to least famous. Mary Magdalene is probably, maybe only one of these three that you know much about. She, she's mentioned 12 times in the four Gospels. She is often connected to this unnamed woman who washed Jesus' feet and poured perfume on him from the alabaster box in chapter 7. And by the way, there's no biblical evidence of that. That is simple conjecture that Mary Magdalene was this prostitute that's mentioned nowhere in the Scripture. Like Simon, though, we saw last week, Mary was an extremely common name. You can probably name half a dozen Marys off the top of your head from the Scripture. There's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, Mary of Bethany, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and uh, Mary Magdalene, several others. When it, when it says Mary Magdalene, that is to distinguish her, of course, in our mind from the other Marys, but that's the title she went by. And Magdala was a village in that area of Galilee, and so she was the Mary from Magdala. Uh, and then there's Joanna, the wife of, of, of Shusa. Now, we're given a little more information about Joanna because we can infer that she was a woman of means. Her husband, Shusa, was the steward or the house manager of King Herod. This is Herod Antipas, the one that had John the Baptist's head cut off. And though we're not told, it's likely that her husband, Shuza, was not a, a believer if he had such a high place in Herod's household. But yet this woman was, was faithful. And she likely used some of those resources that were afforded her by being in a noble house to uh, support the ministry of the, of the, uh, the disciples. And then a third woman here named Susanna. All we know is her name. Her name means lily or flower. We know nothing else about her other than she, like the other two, are listed among the women who had been touched by Jesus, healed of evil spirits or, or sicknesses. And so these women had a vested interest in the ministry. They had been changed by it. They had been touched by Jesus, and uh, they loved him. And so they traveled around with the disciples. Remember, Jesus' ministry was an itinerant one. He would go from village to village. It was sort of, as I've said, like a snowball. He would teach in one village and heal people, and some of them would follow to the next village. And by the time he made the full circle uh, of the route that he was going, there were sometimes hundreds or even thousands of people. And the disciples there, likely their wives and children, were traveling with them. And so all these people are like us. They had to be fed. Their physical needs had to be kept for. And so apparently there was a group of women who took it upon themselves to meet these physical needs of Jesus and and his disciples. And so that leads us to our, our third point as it relates to ministry. Obviously the primary focus of the ministry is the preaching of, of the gospel, but that ministry has to be supported financially. And so let's look now at, at the financing of ministry. And when we talk about the financing of ministry, sometimes we're a little sheepish or embarrassed about that. We think that, that people are gonna think we're money hungry and we do need to be careful because there are certainly false teachers abounding and many in this geographical area in which we live who prey upon the church to enrich themselves. But uh, the Bible speaks a lot about money, it speaks a lot about the support of, of, of ministry financially. And these three women, Mary, Mary Magdalene and 
Joanna and Susanna were representative of what Luke calls here many others who were contributing to the support of their private means. You remember that the apostles had elected a treasurer among themselves, and that was Judas. And uh, there's some commentary in the New Testament that Judas wanted this position because he was a thief and he was pilfering. But these women were just the opposite. They were giving faithfully, not being a burden upon the disciples, but giving from their own private means to support the ministry. And I think there's some important principles about financing the ministry of, of Christ's church that we need to, to be reminded of. One is typically those who support the church best are those who have been blessed by the gospel and by the ministry in the past. And then secondly, those who are presently being blessed and ministered to through the ministry of the church are those who support it. Now, uh, I assumed that growing up was the case, but when I came to seminary, I, I was a little bit disappointed because uh, some, some of the seminary students there, and it's not besmirching anyone, it's just, it's just the truth. Some of the seminary students there, like myself, worked several jobs so that we could support ourselves and go to school and, and hopefully prepare ourselves for ministry in the church in the future. But there were some there that I could name by name, who I won't, who uh, didn't work. Instead, they sent out form letters to every family they'd had any remote contact with and said, don't you want to support my ministry? And so they would wait by the mailbox every day for these checks to come uh, so, so they didn't have to work. And uh, I often thought to myself, and sometimes out loud, what ministry? Because uh, many of them weren't even involved in, in a local church. I'm not saying that to to cast any aspersions on anybody other than the fact that it's the biblical model for those who are actively serving the church to be supported by the church and specifically by those who are being blessed through the ministry of, of the church. That is taking a salary is permissible for those who are working hard at teaching and ministering in the church, but it is not required. I'll expand on that for a minute. 1 Timothy 5, remember Paul is writing this letter to the young pastor Timothy, who has all sorts of questions about ministry for the Apostle Paul, and Paul anticipates those questions, and in chapter 5 he addresses the idea of taking a salary. And he says, let the elders, and by the way the word elders is just another word for pastor, let the elders that rule be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine, for the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labor is, is worthy of his reward. Now, now Paul is at the same time encouraging Timothy, but also keeping him humble. He compared him to an ox <laughs> that was treading out the corn. And so these ox would be tethered and they would go in a circle and trample the corn out from the husk. And uh, it's it pretty uh, menial labor. And yet it would be unthought of, unheard of to put a muzzle on an ox so he couldn't participate in some of the grain that, that he was uh, bringing about. And, and so that is a metaphor for taking care of the pastors in the church. And, and listen, let me be very personal with you. I don't ever plan on stop preaching. Uh, I have asked the Lord to let me one day get to a point financially that I no longer have to take a salary. I would love for that money to go towards missions or to help our, our widows. But Paul said it was permissible and in fact even important 
that the church would support financially its pastors. But Paul at times chose not to take a salary, specifically when he was ministering in Corinth. He didn't want any of those people there to be able to point and say, aha, Paul's fake, he's doing this to enrich himself. And so there were times where he worked other jobs so they didn't have to take a salary. And before I go on from this point, this is budget time here at First Baptist Keller. Our budget cycle is July 1st through June 30th. And so it's February and March that we put together our ministry plan for the upcoming year. And I just need to say to you on behalf of all of our pastors and, and all of those who work here at First Baptist Keller, thank you for how you take such good care of your staff. And I mean that from the beautiful offices on the third floor to the health insurance you provide our families. I don't know of another church, and I mean this very sincerely, who takes better care of their staff. And so, thank you. And as we talk about that around the conference tables every week, we are keenly aware of the responsibility we have of serving you well through the teaching of the Word and through ministering to your needs. And we are keenly aware of the stewardship we have to God for the resources that you supply and that you give. And when we make decisions about the expenditure of money, including our, our budget planning, I try to remember and I, and I try to encourage our staff to remember that the many faithful widow women who have given faithfully off of fixed incomes through the years to support the ministries of this church, who, who work quietly behind the scenes visiting the sick and, and the shut-in, praying for their pastors and for missionaries in their, in their church. And though those women are often unheralded here, here on earth, I believe that they will be greatly rewarded in heaven. But I hasten to add, we, we all know that the goal of ministry is not to be noticed here, is it? As we often say here, that the goal of everything we do is what? It's the glory of God. As the goal in everything that God does. When He spoke the Word and the world spun into orbit, He did that for His own glory. When He called the stars into being, when He called the plant life and the animal life, the flora and the fauna into being, He did that for His glory. When He called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and set aside a chosen people unto Himself, He did that for His own glory. When He sent Jesus into the world to die for sinners, He did that for His own glory. And one day when He judges the living and dead, He will do that for His own glory. And so His aim must be our aim. The focus of ministry is the gospel. We all have different roles in ministry, but the overarching goal must be the same, and that is to glorify God alone. But unfortunately, this seems to be the very thing that the 12 disciples had such a hard time understanding. Seemingly every time we see them together, something happens such as we see in chapter 9. Turn over a page or two in your Bible to, to Luke 9 verse 46. Now you have to understand this is in the context of these faithful women serving behind the scenes humbly, seeking no attention themselves, then the twelve get together, verse 46, chapter 9, an argument started among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, if this weren't so sad, it'd be humorous. Here's these twelve men, most of whom are sort of despised by the culture, 
many of them uneducated, some of them outcasts of society for their own treachery. They're walking and talking for three and a half years with the Master, God in the flesh, the Creator of the universe, and the most often talked about thing is which one of them is the greatest. <laughs> they didn't get it. And incidentally, I have read the Gospels many, many times, and I have yet to find the verse that says the women argued among themselves which one of them was the greatest. <laughs> I haven't found it. But these disciples on multiple occasions in the very presence of Jesus had the habit of arguing among themselves as to which one of them was the greatest. And uh, Jesus rebuked them as he often did. I, I think that's because when an individual, male or female, is in a place of prominence or power or authority or in a position that the world might view as glamorous, that the tendency is towards an inflated ego. It's a tendency that you're more important than you actually are. It's a tendency to think that other people exist to serve your needs rather than, than vice versa. And we have seen this, unfortunately, on display uh, throughout the history of the New Testament church. And that's why we need to be reminded today that the people who Jesus called great are not necessarily the people that you and I would call great. It, it's the people who are faithful. It's the people who don't, don't necessarily have a title, but they have a passion to serve the Lord and His church. And, and again, that's why I always tell young men who want to know my opinion about who the greatest preacher is or the greatest Christian is, I always say it's too early to tell. Because that is something that the Lord will have to sort out. That's not our task to do anyway. Our task is to faithfully serve the Lord until Jesus comes or He calls us home. And we'll let the awards be given out by the award giver, which is the Lord Jesus. Incidentally, there will be awards, rewards in heaven. The Bible talks about uh, two different kinds of judgment. There is the great white throne of judgment, the book of Revelation, in, in which determines your eternal destiny. Either your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and you'll be welcome to heaven, or your name is not in the Lamb's Book of Life and you will be cast eternally into the lake of fire, the Bible says, which is created for, for the devil and, and his demons. But then there is the Bema Seat judgment Paul speaks about in which uh, the, the righteous judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, will distribute rewards and what the Bible calls crowns to His faithful servants. And the, the implication is some will have many rewards and some will have hardly any. And it, it's my assertion this morning that those awards will not necessarily be commiserate with the fame one had here on earth. It will be commiserate with what the Lord Jesus thinks is right, which is always right. In conclusion, there's a verse in the Bible that's always intrigued me. It says this, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Now, that, that is almost always interpreted and applied to money, either rightly or wrongly. In fact, even the prosperity preachers that I'm so hard on love this verse. 
because their, their whole system is based on the idea that if you have a little bit, you obviously want a lot like they do. And so if you'll give them your little bit, then God obligates himself to giving you a lot. You see how that works? And of course, when thousands of people give them a little bit, that's how they get a lot. <laughs> well, this, this verse isn't necessarily talking about money, though there's an application there. It, it's talking about responsibility. It, it's talking about being a part of, of what God is doing in the world. And, and when he says, if you're faithful over a little thing, that's not to say that there are jobs in the church that are important and jobs are unimportant. He's talking about how the world perceives those things. And see, so many in our culture would perceive a, a person cooking a meal or rocking a baby or, or mending someone's garment as unimportant and, and unnecessary and unheralded by our culture if it's done for the glory of the Lord, the Lord would accept that as service to his kingdom. And so he says, I take it, and I think he has in mind some of these women, among others, who faithfully and served quietly behind the scenes, who he gave the privilege of being a part of one of the greatest things, I say the greatest thing that ever happened, which is death, burial, and resurrection. I say that because of, of what we read in Matthew chapter 27, Verse 55 and 56, if you want to turn there quickly. Matthew 27, verse 55, you will remember, is one of the places in the gospel where we have the crucifixion story. And if you remember what happened the night before the crucifixion, Jesus predicted what happened after he instituted the Lord's Supper. They went out to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. He asked his three disciples his inner circle Peter James and John to pray and they fell asleep multiple times while he was praying and finally Judas arrived with this band of soldiers and temple guards and they were going to take Jesus by force which of course was unnecessary Jesus was taken he had a sham trial a series of sham trials really and ultimately he was nailed hand and foot to the cross and he was murdered. And those disciples who said they would never forsake the Lord all ran and hid. And then we read this. Matthew 27, 55. Many women were there, that is at the cross, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. I take it it's that same group of women who had been with him the whole time. They stayed with him all the way to the end. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And then Mark adds in Mark 15, 40, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Jesus and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. And then we read this, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and, and how his body was laid in. Not, not only were they there as Jesus was being crucified, as they were mocking him and jeering, as that soldier cast the spear into his side, they stayed until he died. And after he died, remember Joseph of Arimathea had asked Pilate for the body of Christ and he took him and buried him in his own tomb. And this says, the women followed Joseph and saw the tomb where his body was. Why? Because it was Sabbath and they could not ceremonially anoint him until the next morning. So they went home and prepared spices 
and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. It was Mary Magdalene, same one that's in Luke 8, Joanna, same Joanna in Luke 8, Mary the mother of Jesus and the others with them who told this to the apostles, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Now that speaks from Luke 24, when the morning came and they went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus, they found the stone rolled away. And one of the greatest privileges anyone was ever given was given to these women. They were the first to see the empty tomb. In fact, they even had a conversation with these two angels. They said, where have you, where have you, what have you done with him? And they said, uh, why, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, he's alive. And they went back and found the men who were still in hiding, I take it. And they said, come and see. And Peter and John ran to the tomb. John, we think, was much younger than Peter and in better shape. And he sprinted ahead and went into the tomb and found it, it empty. But it was not Peter or James or John, for that matter, who were the first to see the empty tomb. It was these women. He that is faithful in a little the Lord makes faithful over much. That's not the end of the story either. And remember, for 40 days, Jesus ministered and taught to the disciples and was witnessed to, we think, by hundreds of people. And in Acts chapter 1, before he ascended into heaven, remember Jesus had told them after he ascended to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come in power. And they did this. Listen to Acts 1, 14. They all joined together in prayer, that is the disciples, comma, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. We think there are over 100 people there, probably that same upper room that they had rented the night before Jesus' arrest, and they were waiting and praying, and the Holy Spirit descended in power. These women were the prayer leaders of the church. What's my point? My point is this. There are no unimportant people in the church. And Jesus has elevated the status of women. And the Apostle Paul says in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. And it really comes down to what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. There is no respect of persons with God. It's not just ethnicity, Jew or Greek. It's male or female. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord today. And if you're here today, man or woman, boy or girl, the invitation is for you. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus gave a place of honor and of respect to the women who ministered, many of them quietly, faithfully, behind the scenes. He has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He honors and respects women, and He calls women, along with men, to be his disciples. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I invite you, I call you to repent of sins, to turn away from everything you've been depending on for your own salvation and trust simply in what Christ did for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as I think back over the years, my own life, my own ministry, and some of the most faithful people I've ever met are, are godly women who were prayer warriors. 
who many of lived on very limited income, but who gave faithfully week after week, month after month, year after year, to the Lord's work. And Lord, uh, though we don't remember their names, and the world would think their work unimportant, we are glad to be reminded today that you don't call them unimportant. In fact, uh, we suspect, according to your word, that one day they'll receive great rewards in heaven. Long we, Lord, we long to hear that ourselves one day. Well done, good and faithful servant. So Lord, help us to learn these lessons from these godly women. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.